Hello, listeners. This is once again your kind and loyal unpaid audio editor speaking. This is part two of our conversation about Myanmar. Thank you for listening. Um, if it's okay, so you wanted to expand on that point you made about unions, because um, I remember I um, I watched the labor notes Q and A, and you brought in um, someone from the Solidarity Center who talked about there was a massive strike wave after um, democratization. Um, I forgot when that exactly. I think that was after the Saffron Revolution. It could be wrong, but they but he talked about how the there was this wave of independent unions that were radically democratic. And were very militant in, in their methods. And I'm, I was wondering if, if you found a, an accurate assessment for one thing, but also what's preventing th- that kind of um, union activity from sort of en- entering the political sphere? And, all, and, and if it has, you know, like what's, what's the relationship with sort of dominant, like liberal, liberal nationalist politics was in the opposition? Or I don't know if you can call them the opposition. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think the the larger unions, um, um, th- yeah, th- there's there were there was a kind of explosion of, of registration in the legislation changed from that. Um, so that I mean, there's a I, I I don't I don't have the number. Um, off the top of my head, but I think it's kind of like a couple thousand um, that registered in a relatively short period of time. Um, there are a few really large uh, uh, unions, and, and like I said, those are um, maybe as we would expect of large unions are more or less committed to a kind of tripartite negotiation model. Um, but there are there are a lot of smaller um, kind of more enterprise level unions that are more likely to pursue maybe in some ways kind of more radical labor actions. Um, the, one of the larger unions, I mean, was itself for a long period of time in, in exile, um, and, uh, had very close, um, relations with the kind of exile democratic movement. So the, again, at that sort of like upper echelon of the, the sort of union movement, if we want to think of it that way, uh, it is, it is really tied into, I would say, a, a kind of liberal democratic political vision. Um, but I think sort of at maybe the, the more enterprise level that we, we might see a little bit more. I, I, I used to do a little bit more work on, on labor issues. That I, I don't so much anymore, so it's a little bit hard for me to say more than that. But I would add as well that one of the ways that the kind of current moment has been kind of understood is as part of a, a kind of familiar struggle between authoritarianism and liberal democracy, right? I mean, in some ways, this is the background to everything we're discussing. We're sort of struggling with this framing, right? But I think it's important to remember that in the last 10 years, um, as the person from the Solidarity Center suggested, right, rightly so, we can point to the strike waves that kind of convulsed uh, all of Myanmar's industrial centers under uh, kind of formal civilian rule during the kind of democratic experiment, there, there was this kind of seething kind of working class action uh, in many ways directed against bourgeois democracy's relationship with global capital, right? And so 
if if we recognize that the industrial workforce has been a significant part of the current resistance, and and I do think that's true, which is not to not to underestimate sort of other fractions of of kind of composition of this resistance, including public sector workers, then it's not necessarily so clear that what people are pushing for is the restoration of a kind of bourgeois democratic project accommodated to global capital. It's it maybe sounds a little bit circuitous, but I, I think that's worth pointing out and and worth kind of insisting on, because um, I do think there's a certain truth there. It, even in that truth, I think it's it's we have to be a little bit um, sort of I think maybe respectfully critical of some of the some of the larger unions and their kind of um, the way they do operate within a, a kind of liberal democratic mold. I think in more or less familiar terms, um, there's there's a lot of reasons to to have maybe uh, um, sort of respectful uh, criticisms of, of this sort of, you could say maybe a version of business unionism, um, which perhaps doesn't, uh, doesn't sort of speak to the situation of rank and file workers so well. So there is that element as well. Uh, bef- before we get to the next question, I think uh, I'll just tack on a little comment about what Jeff said earlier uh, and what Jay uh, asked about, about the cohesion of the military. I think uh, in case of South Korea, even after uh, multiple decades of liberal democratic regime uh, with the impeachment and uh, overthrow of the last conservative government, there was a plan within the military for another sort of a coup to safeguard the conservative regime. So even if a uh, a military dictatorship falls and a liberal democratic uh, regime is instated, and even if the, the coup elements, the, mo- the more uh, milit- militarist and authoritarian elements within the military is uh, removed, there will be a lot of... Uh, this kind of coup and uh, authoritarian elements will always remain in the military. I think that's something that we must always keep in mind. I think there have been a lot of discussions about the so-called responsibility to protect uh, the R2P, you know, with about the United Nations, which in most cases is the United States, uh, intervening using uh, military or military intervention or uh, economic sanctions. And I think that's a lot that that is one of the most uh, prevalent point of discussion in South Korea, apart from uh, us trying to pressure uh, South Korean corporations like POSCO uh, to cut ties with the military government. Uh, so I think uh, if you have any opinion about that kind of discourse or uh, other sort of you know geopolitical kind of international, Responses to the the coup and the and the resistance in Myanmar. I heard that yeah, China and Russia uh, vetoed at the Security Council against condemning the coup. So uh, I was wondering if uh, what you could tell us about that kind of international res- uh, response. There's a lot of um, well, I, I should say. Actually, I would argue that it's hard to say exactly how much kind of interest, if that's the right word, there is in something like an R2P intervention 
from within Myanmar. It, it's certainly there's certainly a, a, a kind of um, one one sort of paying attention to things like kind of social media and, and images that have circulated. Um, it's certainly not been uncommon to see kind of signage in English calling for for R2P. Um, I think I think it's worth having a sort of honest conversation, which takes the form of something like R2P is never going to happen, so it kind of doesn't matter. Um, but I, I but I also think that um, um, it's worth asking how many how much traction that kind of desire maybe really has actually because I I, I mean we it's maybe a, it's it's a question maybe of um, uh, something like social media and, and what kinds of images get circulated and which ones don't. But um, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of of how how widely held that desire actually is within the country, if only because I mean it's a fairly um, it's actually a fairly kind of technical process, um, and I, I I mean I can see how um, the kinds of people whose views are oftentimes kind of amplified kind of um, elite figures in, in civil society, for example, um, would have a sort of familiarity and an interest in, in that sort of process. But I'm a little bit skeptical about whether or what degree there's sort of wider purchase for that kind of kind of process. Um, so that, I guess that's just like a little bit of a cautionary note on that. Um, but in terms of qu- wider questions of international intervention, again, I mean, I, I don't think any anything is likely um, in those terms. I mean, as, as you say, um, Security Council action uh, is always going to be unlikely due to the positioning of China and Russia. Um, but I, I would, on that point, also note that it's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's this sort of misperception, um, w- which I do think is actually fairly widely held, that China is somehow kind of backing this this coup um, quite strongly, um, which which is not as far as I can see, is not actually the case. Um, the Chinese ambassador in Yangon even went so in Myanmar, I should say, went so far as to give an interview, which is quite rare, um, saying that the coup is specifically not something they want to see. Um, <clears throat> the relationship between the Chinese government, the Chinese state, and the military is actually not straightforward at all, uh, given that the 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 Chinese state has backed different armed groups in the borderlands for quite some time, including the the communist insurgency for for a certain period, um, but even um, armed groups that that sort of formed in their wake. As a result, as one would expect, the military is not particularly happy about that. On the other hand, um, the NLD government also was able to build quite strong relation, uh, quite a strong relationship with China, actually, and then on. On another hand, <laughs> on a third hand, um, there's, as we know, there's a lot of Chinese investment in, in Myanmar. Um, so uh, from large-scale infrastructure projects to kind of small and medium enterprises. And the, the Chinese government will look, look to work with kind of whoever's in power. Um, that seems to be the most, the most likely scenario. Um, I certainly don't think we can expect a kind of Chinese military intervention as some people seem to think could potentially happen. I mean, there, there were reports of Chinese troops massing at the border, um, but those reports didn't really seem to go anywhere. 
Um, as far as kind of the the U.S. or, or Western countries, um, I mean, the the conversation is much more around sanctions than any form of kind of military intervention. Which you know, among other things, I think you know, there, to an extent, there's been this attempt to draw comparisons between Myanmar and Syria, but Syria became a sort of uh, a, 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 the conflagration in Syria came from the fact of sort of, it became this sort of great power struggle, right? So you had US and, and, and Russia and Turkey, and obviously um, jihadist groups um, kind of pouring weapons into the country. I, I, I don't see that, I, I don't see how that could possibly happen in, in Myanmar. There's just not the kind of, um, there's not this sort of regional interest. Uh, some people have argued that the coup places Myanmar kind of back into China's camp decisively, which could sort of push Western countries to some form of maybe more concerted action than they might otherwise. But but even that, I like I'm not actually sure that this coup places Myanmar in China's camp because the Myanmar military has this very complex relationship with China, actually. Um so then then we're left with the question of sanctions. And um yeah, the, the there's always this um, attempt to kind of develop and, and implement kind of targeted sanctions. I think targeted sanctions could be potentially helpful, um, but uh, the the call for sanctions oftentimes gets sort of very broad. And and and, and I mean, it, it also, in a way that I find a little bit troubling, kind of relies on um, uh, how to put this. Um, I mean, it, it sort of finds the U.S. occupying a sort of moral high ground in, in a way that I, I find sort of ironic. And so I, I have kind of trouble with some of the some of the kind of sanctions sanctions politics. On one hand, as I sort of mentioned early on, I I do think that uh, it's important to remember that um, uh, economic investment is not politically neutral. Um, I do think that that's that's a sort of important thing to keep in mind. On the other hand, I don't find the U.S. kind of putting sanctions on various countries around the world to be a particularly kind of promising form of political action. So we'll, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll have to see, I, I, I suppose. I, I don't think, I, but I, do, I don't think that international intervention will go beyond uh, this, kind of, um, this kind of economic sanctions. So, so uh, hijacking on, on Jack's question, I think... Uh, the really interest. I, I, I guess from what I've been able to follow, I mostly I, I've, I agree with what. I don't know if I'm in the position to agree, but I follow Jeff's argument so far. And I, what I found really refreshing was uh, Jeff, you mentioning how it's hard to say how much interest there is within Myanmar about uh. uh appeals to the international community itself. Because I guess what happens in Myanmar isn't necessarily being reflected into discourse and in- interest in South Korea and how we might react to that. It's, it's, it's actually bewildering how much interest the South Korean public has into the situation in Myanmar, contrast to how uh, a lot of cynicism towards Hong Kong, even in progressive uh, tendencies. Uh, to the extent that I don't, I haven't been able to confirm whether it's true that, but uh, a lot of foreign support, uh, one of one of his biggest supporters, uh, whether it be financial support or otherwise, is from flowing from South Korea, and and it's it's a really hot topic. 
It usually focuses on and ends up talking about appeals to the international community, the possibility to the uh, because of some notion of I guess moral superiority uh, being higher up on the uh, scale of finishing up as a developed liberal democracy. That's how a lot of liberals in South Korea perceive South Korea as being. Therefore, we have to help out uh, our lesser. Uh, brothers or sisters out there, and that's tied into reaching out. On the one hand, that appeals to a large segment uh, with a lot of with financial resources, but on the other hand, that that delimits what on really effective ways to support uh, the resistance out in the streets. So, I guess the the question of how we should relate to Myanmar diaspora, we, by, which might not be necessarily reflecting the Myanmar population's, I guess, desires or wants or needs accurately, uh, but it is really refreshing to hear that 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 is not necessarily what's happening on the ground, and we we might uh, be able to have more distance from that. But one promising aspect that I think is that is developing out of uh, Korea's south social movements is. Targeted sanctions, specifically against POSCO and its ties to the junta. POSCO is a steel manufacturing company, uh, which was which was nationally owned to a certain point. Right now, is is a private entity, and it is investing heavily into Myanmar's gas extraction extraction uh, industry, which is very reasonably suspected to financially support the junta itself. So it has been pointed out. I think it was one of the eight blacklisted companies that is uh, being targeted as being directly funding the, uh, the Myanmar military. POSCO has declared that it will cut, ta- cut ties with the military junta with regards to a steel manufacturing industry, but that wasn't significant at all. The really gold portion is the gas gas extraction. Industry and and that's something that POSCO doesn't want to give up yet. Uh, the ties are deep enough to the extent that Myanmar's navy generals visited South Korea for its launching of its uh, battleship, which POSCO had bought in for the Myanmar military. So POSCO has really deep ties with the junta, and that's being uh, problematized. Explicitly, I think uh, Jeff also saw my tweet about the rally in front of Posco Tower criticizing the junta, and uh, we had a nice time with the cops. You guys were there. Great. So, yeah, I, I think the Korean public is also getting much more aware of this, but there is this, I guess, sense of urgency that South Korea should act out through economic sanctions or through military intervention, which... We can now, as I guess in South Korean social movements, point out that is not what the Myanmar population actually wants. Yeah, I mean, not not necessarily. I would say. I mean, the, 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 I think it's it's just sort of worth keeping that in mind because I think you know, like I'm on one of these like ever proliferating signal chats at the moment. That's that's kind of like a Myanmar info sharing thing, and there's a lot of people on there who are from kind of. Um, um, human rights NGOs, international organizations, people who are involved with um, um, uh, foreign governments, um, all, which is which is great. I mean, a lot of super knowledgeable people. But I, I think there's a rush to to these kinds of these sort of modes of political action because, in a way, that's 
it, it's hard to figure out sort of what else to do. And I mean, these these are these are sort of the the kind of go to. This is the sort of go to political repertoire for this kind of situation. My my like slightly contrarian take on on that stuff is just that I, I I'm actually just not sure that it matters very much. Um, I mean, at least I should qualify that by saying at least in terms of um, Western companies and Western governments, because there's a, there's a sort of misconception that that Myanmar was this sort of isolated, autarkic kind of pariah state for the last 60, 70 years, which is which is not true actually. Um, there has there has been at least since the 1990s, but not only since the 1990s, quite significant capital investment from neighboring countries in Asia, which I, I think people sort of gloss over or just sort of forget sometimes. I mean, the the, the most important investors in in Myanmar, China, Thailand, and Singapore. Um, so to withdraw Western capital doesn't necessarily change, uh, among other things, let's say the sort of core dynamics of capital accumulation. Um, to put it in sort of like abstruse terms, it, that could be, I mean, maybe there's an argument to be made that when we're talking about um, a company like POSCO, that could be a different, a different kind of situation. I'm just thinking in super anecdotal terms. I mean, my family in Yangon, like a, a cousin of mine works offshore um, for, for Daewoo on one of the, one of the platforms in the Bay of Bengal um, uh so doing this in, in the kind of in gas extraction, right? Um, so I mean, there it, it at least for me, like it, it does seem it does seem clear that certain kind of like large East Asian companies um, do actually have their sort of fingers on, on sort of the, on, on kind of key key portions of the economy and could perhaps have maybe more of an effect. But um, but again, I, I yeah, I, I just I just worry about. Um, uh, maybe it's it's a question of um, I, I don't know how to phrase it really a question of um, sort of agency and location or, or how do we how do we conceptualize social transformation in a situation like this I mean what does it mean for if I mean if if the sort of impetus comes from abroad then I'm not sure how sustainable that would be and like I said I'm also not sure how much kind of purchase or traction um, those sorts of uh, ideas actually have among kind of ordinary people. So I, I would, I think just in, in my own sense, like for on, on my end, at least I would, I would sort of maintain a little bit of caution um, around those kinds of, those kinds of strategies. Um, but I guess I would also say that it's different. I do think it's different for, let's say um, for the U S government or, or maybe the, the Korean government to kind of place some sanctions on a, on a country like Myanmar, as opposed to, let's say, um, a, a sort of maybe more broad-based social struggle putting pressure on a company. I think, I think it's, it's a different form of politics for kind of foreign governments to, to take these kinds of stances versus maybe something more like um, kind of international solidarity from, from people abroad. And I, I do think that that's that's one area that that can be productively explored. I might be contradicting myself a little bit. It's it's hard to to sort of work through these things, but even if let's say even if it's difficult for example in in South Korea right to as uh, from a kind of let's say a sort of activist standpoint to put a ton of pressure on POSCO, I do think that even the sort of showing that maybe showing that support that sort of demonstrating that solidarity can be important as well at least in Maybe in some small sense, that that I think is is sort of something something to pursue. But but kind of state sanctions to me is yeah, it's a different question.
Oh, just one more thing is it's it's not just uh, student activists uh, imposing pressure in front of by by being in front of Posco Tower, uh, chanting that Posco should cut ties with the junta. It's also uh, the metal workers union uh, putting out statements. It's also uh, the public workers uh, union. Uh, these these two uh, federations have uh, a a very solid sense of international solidarity. Uh, and I, I think it also it was initiated by uh, the Myanmar migrant workers uh, putting put, uh, going first in in strikes in Teu in in Posco and and that's that started uh, the labor unions to move as well. So yeah, it is it is a critical moment, but I guess the the struggle is is against the liberals who want to just impose a kind of sense of superiority, help out. By imposing economic sanctions, by borrowing the language of of U.S. imperialism, in, in a sense. Um, Jeff, I wanted to go back to when we were talking about this notion of fascism and how it might may or may not apply to the the Myanmar uh, military government. So I thought it was pretty interesting what you said about fascism and how you find it interesting the ways that people are kind of redefining and repurposing the concept. I think sometimes it's used too liberally. In a way that kind of obscures the conversation about fascism, which I think would apply in the Trump context. But anyway, that's uh, I think in, in Myanmar, I think it's a very applicable and useful analytic category. But I wanted to ask you about to go back to an earlier question where we were talking about how the military government at uh, b- between about 1962 and 1988 under General Ne Win nominally identified itself as socialist. And uh, so Ne Win was a, for anyone who may not know, Ne Win was a general in Myanmar who seized power in a coup and instituted what he called the Burmese way to socialism. To me, at least, it seems like this ideological project was sort of a, a mix of Juche style, kind of like North Korean style isolation, isolationism, along with sort of a version of nationalism. It seemed uh, seems very syncretic. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that period in history, because you said before that one struggle that the left has in Myanmar is that when you um, explicitly use socialist slogans and use that kind of leftist language, people sort of like, you know, sigh a little bit and they're like, well, we tried that. And, you know, they kind of give you the side eye and are a little skeptical. So if you could elaborate a little more on this period, like between 1962 and 1988, where there was a nominally socialist government, how did that affect the left? And also, um, to what extent was this purely opportunistic on the part of the military government adopting kind of socialist rhetoric and dressing themselves up in this way? Was it purely opportunistic uh, or in cynical, or was there any sort of organic connection between social movements and this military regime in that period? I think those two things... So I I don't think it was purely cynical and purely opportunistic. And I don't think that there was any organic connection between um, uh, sort of, let's say, kind of workers' movements and, and this kind of state-led industrialization paradigm. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think the, the kind of socialist government that existed at the time was not unlike Socialist governments that existed elsewhere. Um, it was uh, it was committed to a, a fairly um, kind of autarkic uh, state-led industrialization process, um, highly nationalist, uh, and it, in some sense, aims to transcend 
um, kind of capitalist relations of production, but I, I think it's fair to say it did, didn't do that. Um, and maintained a, a sort of intoler intolerably high level of repression, um, as a result of which any any kind of any kind of left um, was was forced very much underground, um, underground or or into armed struggle with as with the, the kind of decades long communist insurgency. I I think it's worth taking seriously the 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 possibility, and this is another kind of slightly contrarian position, but I I think it's worth taking seriously the possibility that it it wasn't actually a sort of cynical usage of the term socialism, perhaps especially for for those who might be interested in in a, in a kind of political horizon that might exceed socialism within a sort of leftist kind of spectrum, because I, I I think the limitations of the socialist developmental regime were not not entirely unlike those of other socialist regimes around the world. I think as well, to go back slightly to that question of kind of, um, maybe it's a question of ideology in terms of how people think of socialist pasts and, and sort of leftist politics more generally. I, on one hand, it's, um, you know, maybe slightly kind of frustrating to have those kind of conversations and, and get the kind of size that you mentioned. Um, on the other hand, it's not necessarily that frustrating maybe in the sense that if we recognize that um, kind of um, political ideas and imaginations and ideologies in some sense are kind of materially constituted, we're living in a different moment now where the kind of material conditions are not what they once were. And um, so I so I don't think that there's, I don't think it makes sense, for example, when confronting that kind of situation to reach back to maybe a sort of more authentic leftist project, even though I, I, I do think there were kind of other strands, right? So, I mean, I, I think before, maybe this is more useful to talk about actually, um, before Nguyen seized power, I mean, I, I, there, were, there were more kind of um, independent strains of, of leftist thought um, geared towards, um, to use kind of like slightly clunky language, sort of proletarian self-organization. Um, you had kind of um, from you know, from writers to um, political vehicles of one kind or another. Um, you, you had an entire spectrum of kind of leftist thought and, and action that, yeah, I mean, once, once the military seized power, it became a little bit difficult to, to sort of uh, remember that in a way. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's, it's worth keeping in mind that the story of leftism is, is not just the story of, of this kind of socialist authoritarian regime, obviously. And there, there is this kind of other other history of of sort of independent leftist thought and action. But I would only qualify that by saying, despite the existence of of that kind of tradition, if we want to think of it as a tradition, I don't think that we can sort of reach back to it and and sort of reapply it in some sense to the present because the material conditions today are entirely different, and the sorts of the the kind of battles that need to be waged are are different um, in material terms and ideological terms. Um, I mean, at that time, for example, liberal democracy was not quite a, a, a kind of antagonist and maybe in the way that it arguably is at the moment, for example. So, Jeff, you just mentioned you've touched on a few times uh, in the discussion today about the role of the Communist Party historically. And then you also referenced how it largely collapsed in the late 1980s. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the role of the Communist Party? It's... Uh, antagonistic relationship to that period we talked about where the when the military regime was nominally referring to itself as socialist. But you mentioned before that Burmese official socialism was actually uh, quite anti-communist and that they 
were driven to the point of actually engaging in armed struggle. So what can you kind of briefly summarize the trajectory of the Communist Party of Myanmar? Uh, it's founding. How did it start? How did it, did it get to the point where it was engaging in armed struggle? What triggered its collapse? Are there any vestiges of the party still active and in influencing the current resistance? Um, are there any organizational descendants of that that party and that movement now? So, Are there any remnants or strongholds for a radical left, contemporary radical left in Myanmar? Uh, who, do, who do we look for for these uh, the presence of communist or socialist ideas in the movements today? The history of the Communist Party of Burma, um, wow, where to start? Well, I guess it starts, starts fairly... Um, uh, transparently in the kind of late 1930s, um, founded by uh, a number of the, the kind of um, the key sort of um, anti-colonial leaders in the freedom struggle, Aung San included, uh, was one of the founders of the Communist Party. Yeah, and then in, in the 1940s, I mean, during the, um, during the Second World War, uh, during the period when the Burma Independence Army um, kind of became the sort of vehicle for the freedom struggle in the context of kind of um, first sort of entering the country with the Japanese army and then turning around kind of um, kicking out the Japanese to an extent through co cooperation with the British. Dur during, this, during this very kind of um, period of upheaval in the, the first half of the 1940s, the Communist Party... Um, was was active, from what I understand, in in a sort of smaller way um, in a lot of rural areas, um, but had kind of tenuous links to the Burma Independence Army. And so some of the some of the kind of the people that we remember as sort of significant anti-colonial leaders, like Aung San, for example, um, he he sort of uh, did not end up being a sort of significant person. Um, within the Communist Party of Burma, and was um, of course subsequently assassinated in, in 1947. Um, however, some of the other um, people involved in the founding of the party did um, did sort of move forward with the development of the party and, and the sort of um, development of armed struggle. So part of this, um, I mean, it depends how much detail you want to go into. But um, uh, what I found interesting was that. Um, the Communist Party sort of began as a, you could say, as like a relatively uncontroversial uh, sort of piece of this larger freedom struggle. Um, but in the 1940s, a couple of the key people associated with the party go to India, um, to Calcutta, I believe, um, where they're sort of exposed to um, maybe a, a sort of changing landscape for for a communist struggle at that point. I think it's fair to say a sort of um, a sort of radicalizing process. Um, there's a, there's something called the Goshal thesis, which was um, purportedly written by um, Goshal, who was one of the um, one of the key people in the Communist Party of Burma. There's some debate about the authorship of the document, but um, but the, it's it's a sort of short ish document. I think it's like something like twenty pages, if I remember. He kind of comes back from India, um, or he may, maybe he writes it there. But he, in this thesis, he he very openly and explicitly advocates um, for 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 taking up armed struggle. I think this was this was before. Ooh, I'd have to go back to some of the records on this, but I think this was before independence. This was like kind of forty four or forty five. 
Um, so the Communist Party actually takes up its insurgency in advance of formal independence. And there's a whole critique of um, the kind of emerging independent government as being um, uh, kind of imperialist stooges. I mean, some of the language that we still see from the military today, um, <laughs> particularly this, this phrase imperialist stooge, uh, kind of goes back to Communist Party um, polemics and propaganda. Propaganda, like not necessarily in a bad way, but but this, this sort of polemical language of political struggle at that time um, sort of founds some of the, the heavy-handed language that's still with us today, for better or for worse. Um, but in that sort of early period of independence, then you had a split in the Communist Party, and there was this sort of debate about um, revisionism, broaderism, and which tracing to... Um, I think Earl Browder, right? The, I think uh, from the American Communist Party and whether to what extent to... Really, Earl Browder was a factor in <laughs> the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Browderism. Internationalism, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Browderism was, uh, was, a, was a big thing at that time. And I mean, it was, it was an object of critique in this, in this split within the Communist Party between the white flags and the red flags. The white flags, according to the red flags, were Browderist revisionists who sought to accommodate themselves to the kind of emerging parliamentary political situation, whereas the red flags um, were anti-revisionists and they would sort of um, go underground and maintain their armed struggle. The red, the red flag was smaller. <laughs> it was smaller and, and ultimately um, less significant as uh, uh, within, within the kind of communist insurgency. The white flag did pursue for a time um, uh, sort of... Uh, I don't know if normalization would be the right term, but sort of accommodation to this kind of parliamentary political situation. Um, but then did also themselves ultimately take up armed struggle and became the more kind of significant strand of, of the communist insurgency. And this was the white flag branch was led by um, a guy named Thakin Thantun. Red flag was from Thakin So. Both were, I think, interesting kind of theorists of, in their own way of, of kind of communism, Marxism, um, armed struggle. Um, one of the things that, um, well, I mean, this is a slightly separate thing, but like when, when we think about uh, kind of ideology, um, I, I do think that one of the more, I think there's a whole history of kind of tactical reflection that could be understood as sort of theoretical reflection. I, I th a lot of the writings of e even someone like, like Ho Chi Minh, right, or were, I think for, for a lot of people are sort of dismissed as, kind of merely tactical um, reinterpretations of Marx and Lenin and not sort of serious contributions to a kind of um, Marxist thought. Um, but I think, at least in the writings of, that I've looked at from people like the Kinso, the Kintantun from the Communist Party of Burma, um, could be seen as, as quite interesting, I think, uh, contributions to Marxist thought more broadly, if we consider the possibility that tactics is itself um, a sort of important arena of political reflection particularly in, in the armed struggles that emerged in Asia and Africa. Um, so if, if we sort of get away from kind of Western Marxism and it's sort of the whole question of ideology, commodity culture, then I, then I think if we move beyond that a little bit, then there's a whole sort of world beyond that. But that, that's a slightly different thing. Um, the, the kind of the communist struggle in, in Burma, the insurgency took... I mean, it, it, it took a, a difficult a sort of dark turn by, uh, by the 60s when you had um, cadres who had been at that point in Beijing. They kind of return, um, and there's this attempt to sort of renovate 
um, the communist insurgency that results in a series of um, quite grisly um, sort of mass trials and executions in the in the kind of um, in the communist camps in the, in the highlands. So even someone like Thikin Thanton and Thikin Goshal as well, I believe, who was the first to advocate for armed insurrection, are executed at that point. Uh, and then there's a so these were internal purges, not mass executions of civilians under their internal purges. Control. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's then a sort of switch to um, kind of base areas in the northeast, um, where there where among other things, my, from my understanding, it was more possible. It was easier to secure material support from from the Chinese state at that point. Um, and so um, you had a stronger relationship develop with China, which had um, benefits, you could argue, but also there was a sort of withdrawal to a large degree from sort of central lowland Burma, and um, you could probably say maybe um, a sort of stepping back and maybe a, a retreat, maybe you could say, from from sort of, sort of its stronger positions earlier on. By the time by the, time the late 60s and 70s roll around, um, the insurgency is, is kind of established in these base areas in the Northeast, um, and they don't at that point really generalize the insurrection beyond that. Um, and it, it sort of collapses under the weight of, um, uh, well, one significant factor uh, was kind of ethnic tensions within the Communist Party, because you still had some kind of relatively high-level Burman Buddhist leadership trying to negotiate relationships with armed groups um, coming from ethnic areas at that point, right? So to sort of establish and maintain their position in the Northeast meant to Try and build relations with ethnic armed groups, and that was a very messy process. That that, um, according to most kind of explanations, is what was the main factor leading to the collapse internally of the the Communist Party of Burma and its insurgency by the late eighties. Um, there were, like I said earlier, there were some vestiges in certain places, like even in the southeast um, and in the south, uh, but I think not super sort of large ones. Um, at that point, it becomes difficult to speak of a sort of concerted um, insurrection driven by the Communist Party. I mean, it still exists actually. There, there's there's a group of um, there's a group of <laughs> I've heard them described as sort of a group of uncles who who live in Yunnan. In um, for a while, they lived on the border. Um, I find this to be very sort of humorous, although I probably shouldn't. But they they were based on the border for a while, and then the there was pressure from the Chinese state to um, uh, to sort of um, reclaim a little bit more control of the border area, and they sort of moved to um, uh, they moved more more sort of inland into Yunnan, and apparently were were want to complain about having to deal with Chinese people more. So there, there's this kind of sort of like xenophobic xenophobia, even within it's, it's it's sort of sad, even within this kind of the Communist Party of Burma which took so much of its material and financial support from, from the Chinese state over the years. But they're still there. They give interviews once in a while. Um, they, uh, they gave, I, I thought, actually a relatively interesting interview before the 2015 election where the National League for Democracy first kind of won a big victory. And they were saying like, look, you know, everyone's talking about um, sort of liberal democratic political gains, but for most ordinary people, they're looking to... Um, Make a wage, feed themselves, um, um, sort of reproduce their their family and their their community, and we don't see enough discussion of that. And I I, I think I thought that was pretty pretty sort of. I mean, it's maybe not surprising necessarily or like super mind blowing, but I thought that was um, 
sort of useful position to put out there. Um, and they're, they're still, they still exist, but they're, they're pretty in, insignificant, I would say. I, I, think it's, I, I do think it's fair to say at this point. Other contemporary radical left movements, organizations? Right. Uh, organizations we should look out for, um, reach out and try to reach out to, uh, establish ties with. Maybe, maybe not necessarily mm-hmm. under these conditions, but uh, perhaps even more so. But because most most ties uh, or those that are get amplified and represented are quite liberal, human rights NGOs, uh, justice advocates. Yeah, I, I I think maybe. I mean, I'll think about it. I'll think on it more. But I do think that some of the um, some of there there's a kind of small handful of labor organizations. Um, that work more with the kind of enterprise level unions rather than large union confederations. I think some of those labor organizations are um, could be quite interesting to to reach out to. Um, I would say as well that land politics has been a, a, a very sort of explosive political question over the last ten years, and there's some there's some interesting work happening around land politics. Some of it kind of formalized in in sort of institutional ways and some of it not. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of network called land in our hands um, that, that I think is, is one of the more sort of politically interesting um, kind of more institutionalized forms that exists. And they try and, they try and sort of coordinate and, and uh, connect different sort of land-based struggles around the country. Um, I think at the level of, of sort of um, maybe ideology or political demands, again, you, you see a, a sort of tacking towards liberal democracy, but um, but at the level of kind of what they're working on in a material sense, I think it's one of the more interesting um, kind of sets of issues out there. Um, I would say that as well, there's, there's um, in and around some of the kind of ethnic civil society groups, there's quite, um, quite I, I think it's fair to say quite radical uh, political work that's happening. Um, even just in the South, which is um, an area I know a little bit better than, let's say, sort of like the North or Northeast, um, there's, I think, really interesting work happening around um, kind of um, indigeneity, indigenous politics, um, kind of almost, you could say, maybe um, uh, maybe autonomous <laughs> like organizations trying to um, uh, kind of develop more autonomous modes of political organization um, in some relation to the armed groups operating in the area, but around things like things like um, kind of forest management, forest management, kind of watershed management, um, organizations that are also trying to uh, uh, kind of raise political questions around agriculture and different forms of agriculture, right? So um, shifting cultivation. Um, uh, uh, kind of wooden agriculture um, is the land where that happens is often seen as wasteland from the from the standpoint of um, well from the standpoint of land laws and so there's a lot of kind of land grabs that happen in in these kind of highland areas where this form of cultivation is dominant um, so there ends up being uh, some some pretty pretty interesting political work happening around that sort of thing um, but I'll I'll think on it more I mean there's also um, there's kind of pockets of um, kind of anarchist and, and kind of punk groups in Yangon and, and a couple other places around the country. Um, they do some some pretty good kind of mutual aid work, um, including at some of the recent demonstrations. There's a kind of food not bombs project that's related as well. 
Um, and around, even around student union politics, I, I think that there's been an interesting, I mean, this might be slightly a historical, but I think there's been like a slightly interesting kind of, uh, and maybe it's slightly wishful thinking, but a little bit of radicalization around student politics. I think it depends on how you, if it's radicalizing, then you have to think about what it was in the past. And maybe in the past, it was more radical than we actually remember it as today. So that's also a possibility, but um, but there's been um, a few kind of like small, um, like avowedly lefty um, kind of like zine slash publishing ventures that have emerged around um, student student unions um, in Yangon, but even actually in, in kind of uh, Mandalay and Moniwa um, in the kind of tri zone in the center of the country, which is not necessarily uh, where most people might look for this kind of a, a kind of radical politics. Um, so that's been that's been kind of interesting as well, I would say. Um, yeah, those are a few, I guess, a, a few sort of initial reactions. So we have talked about the very inspiring resistance going on against the coup in Myanmar. Where do you see things going in the short, medium, long term? Some general thoughts. I know you said before that you're hesitant and reluctant to issue predictions, but what are your impulses about what may happen with the situation? Yeah, again, I, I, I guess my main thought on that would be that um, everything depends on the ability to sort of maintain mass defiance um, in in different kinds of locations, right? I mean, so is it possible, for example, to move from some of these tighter residential areas back into major urban centers and sort of reclaim um, reclaim the city in some way? Um, what about in towns and villages? Um, I think I think if if these kind of demonstrations and strikes can be maintained, then I think we have every reason to think there is a possibility, at least, that something resembling um, victory is possible. Um, beyond that, I guess I yeah, it's it's hard to say too much beyond that. I mean, I guess you could think, what is it that what does that depend on, right? So if, if that's sort of the key factor, then what does that depend on? And um, there's there's all kinds of factors in play for that, right? I mean, partially there's a question of, um, there's a question of fatigue maybe. Um, it's, what is today, April 16th? It's It's been um, two and a half months. And there's been a lot of bloodshed. Uh, it's, it's difficult to kind of process and make sense of that sort of thing for a lot of people. Um, for sure. And, and how long is, can people really sort of maintain these kinds of shows of mass defiance? Um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say exactly. Um, there's also obviously the question of ongoing repression. Um, I saw some, some claims early on that the military appeared to be using a slightly different kind of playbook than in the past. So as, as opposed to sort of heavy handed kind of bloodshed, they were trying instead to, um, kind of wait it out a little bit and try and refrain from sort of um, uh, kind of mass casualties um, and instead try and um, sort of slow things down, tire people out, um, do these kind of nighttime raids on, on dissidents, um, keep, um, you know, heavy control over the information environment with, through shutdowns of the kind of um, mobile phone, internet, these, these sorts of things. Um I, I think that could still be a factor, um, but 
at least until now, um, even in the last few days when it's been relatively quiet, we still have seen um, quite a bit of willingness to to get out in the streets, right? And um, part of this, I think, is that uh, to an extent, there's there are institutional forms that continue to be able to kind of turn people out. Like at least in the South, a lot of the really consistent um, actions in Dewey Town have been by teachers and engineers, actually. Um, so teachers are public sector workers. And that goes back to um, the public sector having been actually sort of in many ways the, the first site of this kind of general strike. And then the engineers have a kind of strong um, position within the student union. And it's, it's a quite an active sort of vibrant political space in the South. Um, so maybe you could say that some of these institutional forums are helping to sort of reproduce and maintain and, and sort of continue this, this mass resistance. I hope that continues to be the case. Um, I hope that this national unity government uh, is as promising as as it appears to be to a lot of people, but we'll have to see. It's like I said, I, I find this kind of predictive stuff to be a, a little bit difficult. Uh, so, what would be the best source of information for our listeners to follow the situation as it continues to unfold in Myanmar? Aside from if Twitter, <laughs> if you have any in English language, perhaps. <laughs> We'll link, we'll link that in the show notes along with your uh, most recent pieces. You know, as someone who's kind of far away, I tend to I'm in a position like like a lot of people, like like you guys, I'm sure in, in some ways, right? I'm sort of I'm on Twitter, I'm on Myanmar in Myanmar Facebook is is huge. Um, so I'm on Facebook as well. Um, I mean a lot of uh, local sort of um, like regional news agencies and operations. Um, are super active on Facebook and and they don't have any presence on on Twitter, and so like in the South, friends are, who are active as kind of journalists are posting a lot of stuff on on kind of Facebook groups and Facebook pages. Um, there's also your sort of usual suspects in kind of English language media, like the the Irrawaddy, for example. Um, uh, these are also, I mean decent sources for sort of basic information. Um, they won't necessarily give you a, a kind of radical political um, understanding of the, the situation, but they're good to good to keep an eye on. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Jeffrey Ong, for joining us for this episode. That was a fascinating discussion. Uh, we will see you all next time on the next episode of Red Star Over Asia. 